And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Well, tonight we come near the end of uh, our study of the Creed. Um, The lines that we're going to look at tonight talk about the church. And if we can get those and go right to that, Bruce. I don't know if those are up there for us tonight. There we go. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So when you recite uh, the Creed, and you come to this part of it, we've talked about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The next part is an affirmation of our belief in the church. This actually may be the most difficult part of the Creed to affirm for many of you, or for many Christians today. A lot of Christians uh, no longer see the church as essential for spiritual growth and for fulfilling the mission of of God. Actually, there's a name now that uh, church watchers have come up with. They call these folks post-congregational Christians or churchless Christians. And there's a a growing body of research on on this kind of person. It's fascinating. There are as many as 178 million Christians around the world who uh, would consider themselves post-congregational. And according to George Barna, one researcher, uh, he found a survey that they regularly participate in faith activities like Bible reading and prayer, but they haven't attended church in six months. So it's very interesting. It's, It's a whole new trend where people have decided, uh, I like Jesus, I don't like the church. And, and I'm just not going to uh, go there anymore. Now, there's a lot of literature today about millennials, young folks. I don't like those kind of labels, um, but that's how, how we talk about folks who are uh, under 32 these days. And th- there's a lot of writing about why the millennials aren't going to church. And uh, they aren't going to church much, statistically. 59% in a recent survey uh, of of young people under 30 who are raised in a Christian home no longer go to church. Uh, Barna Research pointed that out. And one one group of researchers asked people in this age group, cite all the factors that have helped you grow the most spiritually. And the church did not make the top ten. So the church is, uh, it does not seem to be as important to people's understanding of spiritual growth as it used to be. You can see this in, in the literature uh, of some best-selling Christian books. Uh, Brian McLaren's book, Generous Orthodoxy, Marcus Borg's The Heart of Christianity. Both of these are trying to, they're, they're voices from the progressive side of the church. They're trying to lay down the foundations of the church. They're trying to relate to this generation that's leaving the church. And in both the books... There's almost nothing about being in the church. Uh, I don't even think there's a chapter on the church. One of the voices that I look to the most frequently to try to understand what's going on in the progressive wing of the church is uh, Rachel Held Evans. 
She's a very gifted writer and blogger, very articulate. Uh, her father uh, is a professor uh, down in Dayton at Bryant uh, College, and uh, she's gone on quite a faith journey and recently wrote a book about how she left the church, left the faith, and then found her way back again, uh, called Searching for Sunday. But it's interesting, even though it's a book about her coming back to a church, she still doesn't seem very happy about it. <laughs> in um, one paragraph, she says, I can only tell my own story, which studies suggest is increasingly common. The truth is, I don't even bother getting out of bed many Sunday mornings, especially on days when I'm not sure I believe in God or when there's an interesting guest on Meet the Press. She's very honest. I think a lot of people feel that way. Christians also are attending church less frequently than Christians a generation ago. Uh, one survey found that among people who considered themselves committed Christians involved in a church, the, the average now is 1.6 uh, worship services a month. Uh, so r- roughly about one every three services. Now, what you might say at this point, and I've had this conversation, it's been a real good conversation. Well, Doug, there's your problem. You're thinking about the church as a building you go to once a week for worship. But, but isn't the church that we find in Acts uh, a 24-7 life experience? Uh, the, early church, the early Christians didn't go to church, Doug. They, they lived the church. Uh, maybe people aren't coming to your worship services because they're experiencing church in their neighborhoods with their people and, and living in Acts 2 ways. And, you know, I think there's a really good point to that. Uh, I really think that's a fair, a fair critique. Um, and I do see some of the most encouraging, powerful expressions of, of the church I've ever seen as you live this out in your neighborhoods and break bread together and pray together and study God's word together. And, and I've asked a couple of you, um, hey, where you been? <laughs> and uh, uh, often the answer is, you know, m- my experiences with my people in my neighborhood are so rich uh, that, that I just don't feel the need to go to church. I've kind of been in church all week. And, and I've been thinking a lot about that, um, partly because I do sense that we're going through this enormous shift as a culture about what church looks like. Um, and, and, and part of me doesn't want to get in the way of the work of the Holy Spirit clearly believe God's doing something profound. But there's a part of me, and I just want to say this, I'm not sure I'm right, that there's a part of me that worries about um, this movement. Uh, and again, I'm not sure I'm right, but in the 70s, there was uh, a lot of sort of resistance against the institutional church, and so people looked for more organic, non-institutional expressions. And, and, and started these wonderful, wonderful, flourishing movements in their homes. And just from my perspective, after watching that for the past 35 years, almost always those movements were not sustainable. Uh, the leadership almost always burned out. There was a tendency to uh, drift into doctrinal error or legalism. I'm not saying that will happen again, but I just have some concerns. So, as we approach what the creed says about the church, I just ask you, wherever you are on that spectrum, to think about this uh, with us. And 
I want to learn if, if that is how you're going to be. If this is the new way people do church, is that your church is with your people and you, you come here once a month. If that's where it's going, uh, pray that we'll figure out how to partner with you in that. You know, I'm old school enough that that doesn't feel right to me. But maybe that's where it's going. I don't want to get in the way of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but somehow I think we've got to talk about this and kind of figure it out. I haven't figured it out yet. Well, let's look at um, what the creed says about the church. Uh, the fathers ask us to affirm our belief in the church as God's primary means of saving the world. And I, I like this quote from uh, the best book on the creed I've got, Luke Timothy Johnson. Christians confess that this church, the word used by the New Testament simply means assembly in secular Greek, this gathering of frail human beings is the triune God's chosen instrument for the work of transforming the world. The very structure of the creed implies that the invisible God, who is creator and judge, the risen Christ who is enthroned with the Father, and the Holy Spirit who sanctifies humans, works through and in the life of a community that in Nietzsche's phrase is human all too human. I like that. What he's pointing out is that of all the things, you know, the fathers got together and they tried to identify the core of the faith, the essentials, the apostolic deposit. And of all the things they could have put in that little core, one of them was the church. <laughs> that the church was God's means for blessing the world, God's primary means for spiritual growth. And, you know, I'm just not sure a lot of Christians believe that anymore. Um, we like to split off the good Jesus from the bad church. <laughs> uh, everybody likes Jesus, uh, but not so much the church. But the church is God's idea. It's, it's not really our idea. The word just means gathered community. In the Old Testament, when God comes to save the world, he comes to Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless the world through your family, a gathered community. He forms Israel together as a people. The first thing our Lord does uh, when he starts his ministries, he calls 12 apostles to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He forms the, the church, the new Israel. I mean, we've talked about this again and again and again. Jesus says, I will build my church. Paul describes the church as the temple of the living God. The letters of the New Testament are written not to individual Christians, but to the church. We get it. The church is plan A. There's no plan B. Um, it, it's, it's God's way of healing the world. Um, I want to give you just a couple of quotes here that show that this is how the, the body of Christ has thought about this from the very beginning. The first is from a third century church father, Cyprian of Carthage. He can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. The second quote is uh, from the 16th century Heidelberg Catechism. Question, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? Answer, I believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community I am and always will be a living member. And then this last one is from a 21st century church historian. The very idea of authentic, vital Christianity apart from the church was virtually unheard of before the 20th century. 
Nowhere in the great tradition of Christianity before the 20th century can one find the uniquely modern phenomena of churchless Christians. The assumption throughout Paul's letters is that the church is the indispensable vehicle of the Christian life, the locus of Christ's special presence and the Spirit's power. So, when the creed asks us to affirm our belief in the church, it's reflecting scripture and, and tradition. Now, let's look at these four marks of the church for a moment. Uh, first of all, the church is one. The church is one worldwide community of believers in Jesus Christ whose head is, is, is Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all. We all have been baptized into this community of forgiveness. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, notice what he does in that phrase. He, he picks out the names of all the different class distinctions, all the different social divides in the ancient world. Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free. And he says, look, look what's happening among you. The world that you live in splits everybody up. But what's happening in the church is when you come to Christ, all those social distinctions are obliterated. There's no race. Uh, there's no social class. You're all one in Christ. What strikes me is that that's really hard to live out in a practical way. Uh, I came across a new word this week I, I may use in, in uh, Scrabble. It's called homophily. I've never seen that before, but, or maybe homophily, I don't know. But it defines our social networks. And, and it's this sociological principle that says that the people that we love and are attracted to the most are similar to us. And it makes sense, right? There's less, it's just easier for me to have a conversation who's like me and thinks like me and sees the world like me. It, it creates less cognitive dis dissonance. I don't have to work as hard. It's not as existentially disturbing. And what I think has happened is because it's hard for us to have a church of slaves and free and Jews and Gentiles, we've allowed homophily, however you say it, some sociologist send me an email and correct me, whatever that is, we create a church for the slaves and a church for the free, and a church for the Jews, and a church for the Gentiles. That's not the oneness that God calls us to. And, and I think there's a reason why he does this. If I am always having breakfast with the same four guys who are reading the same four books and telling the same four stories over and over, year after year, I will stop growing. Now, I think it's good to have long-term breakfast with long-term guys, but if that's all I ever do is talk to people who agree with the world as I see it, I will stop growing. 
And, and the sociologists call this plausibility structures. They say that, that we gravitate towards little small worlds where everybody agrees with us, and that reinforces how we see the world. But what God does is say, get into a community where there's lots of differentness, and you'll grow. So look at your relationships for a moment. Do you have any rich, truth-speaking friendships with Christians, we're talking about the church tonight, with Christians who see the world very differently than you do? Even one. Do you remember the last time you came away from a breakfast or a lunch and you thought, I have never thought about it that way before. I think that's part of what God wants when he calls us one body made up of remarkable differences. The church is holy. God tells Israel, be holy as I am holy. He gives Israel a long list of laws so that they will learn how to be holy before their neighbors. The church is called the holy people of God. Paul addresses letters to the saints or the holy ones. He calls us the holy temple of God. Because we're holy men and women, Paul calls us to walk in holiness. So the church is a community devoted to holiness. Now that tells us something very important about what we're to be about as a community. We are to help each other become holy. That's one of the primary reasons we need the church. The Bible doesn't think we can do that well by ourselves. I need you, you need me, we need a community who will help us become holy by holding us accountable, challenging us, reminding us who we are in Christ calling us out when we're not living like who we are in Christ? I'd go so far as to say that in a, in a community that's helping people become holy, one of the things that happens is there's a degree of fear, of holy fear. And I don't mean a, a, a cringing, shaming kind of fear. I mean, when I'm on the road... I know that I've got breakfast with a friend next Tuesday and he's going to ask me how it went. Are the relationships that you have ones that make you holy? Do you have people in your life who, yes, love you, yes, accept you, yes, will have a beer with you, yes, will weep with you, yes, will acknowledge your doubt, yes, will embrace your fear, yes, will accept your questioning, but at the end of the day, will look in your eyes and say, I just think you're wrong. Don't do that. That's part of what it means to be a church. Doesn't have to be nasty, doesn't have to be mean, but it's part of what it means to be a church. You know, I've been listening a lot lately to uh, podcasts and, and, and things about this whole 
why aren't people coming to church? And how do you how do you reach the church these, this age group? And one particular podcast has just really been fascinating to me. It's called the Liturgist, and uh, a couple of you have sent it to me. I've been listening to it, and I, I've got this real love hate relationship with it because th- th- they are winsome and witty and articulate and saying some wonderful things, some accurate things. They're they're empathetic and in all the things that you would want. And I, they're the kind of people that I just want to be with. And yet, there's this little voice in me that, as I listen, says. Something's not right in this. The, the, the questions that keeps coming to my mind is, you know, the kind of church they're describing, I, I know I've been there before. I know I've been there before. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And then I think, in the therapist's office. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I like therapist's office. Therapists help me become holy. But is that what the church should be? So, part of who we are as the people of God is a people who live under the authority of the Scriptures and help each other move towards holiness. The church is Catholic. That word means universal. And what this means is that We are part of a worldwide network of churches spread throughout Palestine, Syria, Asia Minor, Greece, Italy, and today all the parts of the world. Why why does that matter? Who cares? Well, Christians understand that we're all part of the one human race. That every human being has dignity and worth. That there is a sense that every human being is my brother or sister. But Christians have always believed something more than this. We believe we've been baptized into a community of forgiveness called the church. And when that happens, we're adopted into a new family, the family of God. And Jesus says that this new family is more of a family to me than my own family. That's a really radical idea. And that means that the Chinese widow who went to church last night at midnight to avoid the police is my mother. And that means that the little orphan boy in Sao Paulo who found his way to a Pentecostal children's church this morning is my son. And it means that the homeless man that took communion at the shelter this afternoon is my brother. The church is Catholic. Last of all, the church is apostolic. What does that mean? It means that we are faithfully grounded in the teachings of the apostles. One theologian puts it like this, The church is not a group of people groping for a philosophy of life appropriate to modern conditions, but a living body already being shaped by apostolic teachings. Paul tells Timothy that the first task of a Christian teacher is to hold fast to sound teaching passed on from the apostles. And listen to Paul as he describes his ministry to the Corinthians. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again on the third day. Now, what's He doing there? 
This is very important language. I have passed on what I received. He receives the apostolic tradition. He passes it on. He says to Timothy, guard the deposit, pass it on. Hold on to what you got, pass it on. It's this divine relay. And the true church is grounded in this apostolic deposit that comes from the apostles. Now, this is where we've got to parse it out just a little bit more because we understand that the Holy Spirit helps us apply the Scripture as we go through life and as culture changes and situation changes. The Holy Spirit is always guiding and directing and leading us to apply Scripture. Sometimes we broaden the meaning of Scripture. Sometimes we refine the meaning of Scripture. A century ago in this town, the preachers said that uh, it was God's will that a black man would submit to a white man. We look at that now. We say it doesn't sound like God's will. So the Holy Spirit is constantly revising and applying and changing under the leadership of the Lord. But the essential gospel never changes. And this is where we've got to be very, very careful. It's kind of like that old tetherball game where you whack that ball on the, the pole in, the, in, in elementary school. Well, the, the apostles' teaching is the pole. And the ball is, is like the Holy Spirit leading the church to apply the scriptures to wherever you are in life. But the pole never moves. That's very, very important for us to understand. Especially in the four weeks we're going to take at the end of the series. I think we're going to start June 7th with the last part of the series. And I'm going to give you some case studies about different things Christians disagree on that are not in the creed. We're going to talk about, well, how do we, how do we work through that? And I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to encourage you to be open to, to, to rethinking your positions and all those things. But remember, we're not talking about the creed. The creed is the pole. We've got to hold firm to the creed. And, and as I was listening to this incredibly powerful uh, broadcast or podcast this week, and, and I, I just had all this turmoil in me because on one hand I was thinking, this is raw, this is real, this is so authentic, there's so much I like about this, this is reflective of so many people in our culture, God, this is so real. There was something in my spirit going, something is really wrong. And as I thought about it, I asked, what is their authority? I mean, everybody has authority, right? You find your answers somewhere. And, and so I listened to this. And one thing about these podcasts is they're way too long. I don't know if they've ever met an editor. But this one was like two and a half hours. And I'm listening to it. And I'm asking, okay, what is their final authority? And here's, here's what I came away with after two and a half hours. Their wounds. That at, at the end of the day, what seemed to have the most resonance with them as they shaped their approaches and their theology was all the hurt that they had experienced and that others had experienced. And, and I think it's very important to pay attention to people's wounds. And I'd say the second source of authority on this particular podcast was uh, modern science. Uh, about 15 times, one of the speakers quoted a scientific study I don't know if I ever heard a scripture the whole two and a half hours. I think it's important to pay attention to scientific research. I think it's important to listen to our wounds. 
But what I think is different about what we're trying to do is our authority is the apostolic tradition. We, we start not with the... And this will sound really wrong, but my first question is not what will feel the best or even what will cause me to flourish the most. My first question is what has Revelation said? And then I move to and how do I apply that in a way that will help human flourishing? It's a very different thing. And, and, and Because I know when we get into part two, it's going to sound a little scary because I'm going to push on you. And you're going to wonder, have we left the moorings? Well, we spent 18 weeks studying the pole. <laughs> okay? Uh, some of you are telling me, enough already. We've got to move on. We're going to move on. The pole doesn't move. Okay? Now, well, in with this, I, I, I don't. I'm not going to argue with you if, if, if living church 24/7 um, is meeting your needs. Uh, amen. I mean, that that sounds a lot like Acts 2:42, and well, you're probably not here tonight anyway to hear that. So, <laughs> um, but if you were, I'm fine. If that's what you want to do, uh, I still have concerns, but. Here's what I want to ask you, whether you're uh, having beers on the porch with my bros church or you're, you're here, wherever you are. What is your relationship like with the church? I mean, whatever it is that you define it, I get it. There's different expressions. But whatever it is, if you're a Christian, I know you believe that the church is essential to spiritual growth. I know you heard Hebrews 10.24 let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as the day draws near. How are you doing? Are you regularly praying and worshiping and studying God's word and fellowshipping with other believers, whether it's here or somewhere else. I just think, friends, we give each other a pass on this. We give each other a pass on it. And I, I think the gathered assembly, whether it's in your basement or, or in this crazy room, is one of the spiritual practices you have to practice to grow in the faith. It's plan A. And a friend and I were talking about a guy that we'd been trying to work with and it wasn't going very well. And this pastor said, you know, at the end of the day, he was not willing to practice the normal means of grace. And I think you can't get around that. There are some basics. There are some foundationals to spiritual growth and being involved in a worshiping community, taking the sacrament, hearing the word preached, having holy brothers and sisters who call you on your junk. That's where you begin. How are you doing? Be honest with yourself. How has this year been? Know you're busy, know you're tired, know you're sleepy, know the weather's good, know the weather's bad, know it's cold, know it's hot, know you like the worship, know you don't like the worship, know the series boring, know we're moving on. I get all of that. I love you. I hear all of it. Given all that, how are you doing? Let's pray.